Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll discuss The Long Walk, chapters 1 through 8. Let's start the show. A group of 100 young men compete in a competition called The Walk. Starting near the Canada-U.S. border, the men must walk at a rate of at least 4 miles an hour. Fall below that and a warning is given. After three warnings, another violation causes the walker to get a ticket. We see the walk play out from Ray Garrity's perspective, as he and the other walkers try to overcome the physical and mental challenges of the walk to win the prize. Prize. Jay, the whole Stephen King thing wasn't working for us anymore, so we decided to pick it up with a new author. goes by the name of Richard Bachman. We thought we'd give that a try, see see what his books are like. Yeah, I mean, he, he has a similar style. Yeah, I, I could see a little bit of connections, and turns out that, you know, there might be some similarities in uh, what he's writing about and what King writes about, so we thought we'd give it a shot for a little bit here. Yeah, it was like recommended in Amazon. You know, if you like Stephen King, you'll probably also like Richard Bachman. So here we go. So this book, The Long Walk, was published in 1979. Uh, it was a paperback only. It, was, it didn't start at hardcover. It was paperback only. And it turns out it was written while Stephen King was a freshman in college. I don't know why that's relevant, but I thought I'd let you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe this bit's gone out a little bit too long, Jay. This wonderful bit that everyone will love. Hey, Jay, Richard Bachman is Stephen King, breaking news. No. That makes me so angry, I'm going to write a whole book about that. So this is an early, early King book. It, in fact, I think he says it's one of the first ones he ever actually wrote. He submitted it, I believe, to a random house first novel competition. I thought you were going to say a random competition. A random competition <laughs> conducted by Random House. Mm. And he got a form letter rejecting it out, outright uh, after he wrote it. So he put it in his little slush pile. I think he calls them trunk novels, you know, where you just throw the manuscript in a trunk and, and don't worry about it. But he always thought it was pretty good. And when he decided to publish under a pseudonym, this is one of the ones he pulled out. And like I said, it got published in 1979. Since then, it's gone on to be somewhat recommended. The ALA, the American Library Association, of which my wife is a member, listed The Long Walk as one of the 100 best books for teenage readers published between 1966 and the year 2000. So one thing I'm not clear on, I know the audience was not aware that Bachman was king at, when this book first was published yep. as Bachman, but did King's publishers know? that he was king. His publishers and editors knew, knew, but but not anybody else. Got it. And the bookstores definitely didn't, because one of the things he points out in an essay called Why I Was Bachman, which is the introduction to the 1985 collection called the Bachman books, which are the first four Bachman novels. Mm -hmm. He said that, you know, these were just paperbacks. They didn't get any sort of promotion. Like he talks about the different layers of publishing, like there's the the ones that get the hardcover and get press and get sent to reviews. And then they're sort of like this mid-tier, which, you know, they might have a little uh, cardboard stand in your 
in the 1980s in your Walden books or your B. Dalton. Mm -hmm. And then there's like the lower tier, which are just, hey, we just publish these paperbacks and send them out. And if they sell, they sell. And if not, and he says that Thinner, which is not one of the original four Bachman books, but was a fifth one, sold 28,000 copies when it was a Bachman book. And it ended up selling 280,000 as a King book. So you can tell the level and publishing differences once you get to be a big name such as King. Maybe we should finally reveal that we are Stephen King on this podcast and we will <laughs> we'll go to the moon. And in that essay, why was Bachman from 1985, King considers the long walk, quote, pretty good. Fine praise from Stephen King about his own work. Pretty good. But he does say that it is full of windy psychological preachments, both textual and subtextual but that there's still a lot of story. And as we know from King's other writing about his own writing, story is most important for him, right? Anything that can sort of push things along. And I'd agree with his assessment of this book. It's pretty good. Yeah. And I would also agree that there are a lot of psychological preachments, both textual and subtextual. <laughs> yes. It reads as if an 18-year-old boy wrote it, mm -hmm. but a much better 18-year-old boy than I was, who was playing Nintendo. Or a much better writer well, yeah. than you were at 18. True, true. These books were all then republished in the late 90s. So The Rage, Roadwork, The Running Man, and The Long Walk were published as individual paperback novels, obviously with King's name attached to them at that point. And King wrote another essay leading into those books. That was called The Importance of Being Bachman. So that was, that was written around 1996. And he takes a much different view of why he wrote these books sure. and really his thoughts on Bachman. So that first one was just sort of like, ah, uh, Bachman got found out. And one of the reasons that I was publishing is Bachman, because I still had these books and I was worried that I was, you know, my publishers were worried that I was over publishing to some extent. And I still wanted to get stuff out there and, and they didn't really fit the tone. So blah, blah. Anyhow, he has all these reasons and he's like, yeah, Bachman died, whatever. But in this second essay, it's very strange. He talks about how like, he was really sort of pissed off that Bachman got found mm -hmm. out as being him and that he resented it. Uh, he said, I was surprised, upset, and pissed off and that he never created Bachman to be a short-term alias, but almost as if a secondary writer where he could publish things that had a different tone than what he was writing in his own books. I joked about that earlier, but King did write The Dark Half as basically a response to the exposure of Bachman. Yep. He took it you know, one step further how there, in a sense, he saw this identity of Bachman as his darker half. Like he could have that different perspective. He could have that different almost tone and explore a whole side of himself without those built in expectations that the name Stephen King brought with it. Yep. To have that snatched away from him as an outlet, I can totally understand why he would be resentful of that. Yeah. He actually says that. That first essay, he felt wasn't very good, and it reads to me like a classic case of author obfuscation. Like he knew, like, okay, I'm saying this to put a good face on it, mm -hmm. and I, you know, my publisher wants to sell these books, and I've been found out, so I need to write an essay about it. But I'm not happy about it at all. Nope. Do you think he would have published the the Dark Tower books as Bachman if no one had known? No. Okay. I mean, we've talked about how the the Dark Tower books are so different from so much of his other work, especially the first couple of books in the series, that you know maybe the Gunslinger might have been something that he saw as an alternate version of himself or an alternate author. 
that would have gotten really awkward when he got to volumes five, six, and seven. Yeah. He does have a good insight in that second essay where he says that these books were written by a young man who was angry, energetic, and deeply infatuated with the art and craft of writing, hmm. which probably says a lot about him, you know, at 18, 19, 20, when he was writing these books, that he was probably eating, drinking, and thinking writing all the time. Sure. And so, like, he just wanted to, like, get stuff down. And I think he says, like, The Running Man was written in, like, a 72-hour period. Like, he just, like, hammered that book out. Was he doing cocaine all the way back then? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I don't think so. But like, I think that says something about, you know, just how much he enjoyed writing and how much he wanted to get stuff on paper and try. And the fact that he's very open about, hey, I sent this to a first novel competition. I got a form letter rejecting it. I put it in the trunk and I went and wrote something else, you know, and he just kept Mm -hmm. writing and kept writing and kept writing, which says something about him because a lot of people would have been like, hey, I thought this was good. And to not even get a a personalized letter to just get a form letter, that sort of rejection might push me away from this. Like maybe it's not for me, but there's enough stories about King to know that that wasn't ever going to stop him. The fact that he has said, what, like 20 years ago, I'm going to retire and not write again. Uh-huh. And he's still gone on and continued to write up to this day. I think it's pretty clear that he will be writing for the rest of his life. Yeah. I mean, he's dialed it back to what, three, four books uh, a year. Yeah. Right. There is enough in here and we'll get to some of the, the specifics later in the the episode, but this book does feel like something that might get passed over by a publisher. Yeah. And there is some spectacular writing moments here, but there's also a lot of the very mistakes that King cautions against in his book on writing. Mm. This is an example of an unpolished writer just starting out, a particularly talented one, but still a pretty good writer. Right. And then finally, the last thing on that essay, he says that these books were written in a Bachman state of mind, low rage, sexual frustration, crazy good humor, and simmering despair. That's a great summary for this story. Oh, definitely. Right? Yeah. Like that's this entire novel summarized. And he he says it's odd because, you know, like these all tend to have fatalistic endings. I don't think that that's a spoiler. Like he says it in his essay introducing these books. So it's it's not Mm -hmm. a spoiler. And he says, I know that's weird coming from me who wrote Pet Cemetery and Cujo and to some extent Christine. Like his books don't necessarily always have happy endings, but there is a different level to these, right? Like it's a much darker book. And I think that that's why when he's chosen to bring the Bachman alias back, you're expecting a different type of book. Absolutely. All right. So let's get into the world of the long walk. So, Jay, tell me what exactly is the walk and what's happening here. I know I outlined it at the beginning, but this is a odd little competition that's going on here. At its core, the definition that I can glean from the, the what we've read of the book so far is that every year, 100 young men volunteer to walk until all but one of them have died. Yep. And then the remaining... 100th walker gets the prize. The prize is you get anything you want. It's not like a single monetary payment. It's not like you get all of your things taken care of for the rest of your life. It's like you just tell us what what's important to you. But it might be more specific than that. We might learn more later in the book. But And I don't know if it's a one-time only thing because like the one guy says, oh, if, if I win the prize, I'm going to have all these soldiers castrated. And it's like, yeah, is that what you want to waste yours on? Or do you want to like $1 million. 
yeah, it feels bigger than that. Like it's not like a mu- three wishes and I you can't wish for more wishes type of right. thing. It's it feels more open than that. And beyond that, we have to assume that there's a certain type of society that exists around this that that supports this, that condones this, that in fact revels in this. And thus far, we have only gotten the tiniest touches and hints at what that society is like we know that there is this military major who seems to have a lot of power but so far we haven't really learned who he is is he the instigator of a of a coup and is therefore the de de facto ruler of the united states now and if so why is his rank only major I mean, if I took over a whole country, I'd be like Supreme Chancellor General or something like that. I don't know. The Grand Puba. Whatever. Something bigger than major. And it also seems that for the most part, life in the United States is just like life in the United States the way we know it to be, or at least it was in the 60s when the story was written, except for that there's this long walk every year. Yeah. There's still a United States. There's still a Canada. Mm Mm-hmm. There are touchstones that we're used to, like there's a Dairy Queen and a McDonald's and L.L. Bean still exists. Yeah. Everyone seems to be mostly free to some extent. Like there's just people who are crowds who are coming to watch it. There are still people who are driving trucks who are upset because the route is blocked off in places. You get the hint that there is something called squads where people are taken away for something to do with alternate views of what the government has in mind a little bit gestapo like yeah but we're not exactly told like what types of views those might be or how radical they are but it does seem mostly normal except for this fact that there's this horrible this horrible walk that yeah people still volunteer for and and that is again the thing you mentioned that they're volunteers like why are they doing this what besides the prize what's in it for them i think that that's the other big question this is one of the examples where I I think this might be part because King is still a writer who is just starting out and also this is King is a writer who is writing in the 60s when I have been conditioned now for the last 15 plus years of watching TV shows and movies of a certain type to look for the mysteries to unpack the the subtle clues along the way to figure out what is this world why do the characters do this thing like the long walk and and stuff like that when i don't think king ever really considered this level of detail i think his point isn't about why is the world this way or what is the world all about let's focus on the walk itself let's figure out what makes these boys tick right that's the important thing but i just wish coming from too many years of watching shows like lost what's the mystery behind this what's going on and so I bet that if King had a chance to rewrite this book or if he wrote this book today, he would have a lot more of that. And even if it was very subtle and even if it was still localized to the road that they were walking on, yep, there'd be a bit more there. Yeah, because it's hard to do. You don't want to be the boring narrator who has to explicate everything that's going on. And mm-hmm. the United States is now divided up into this and that. Like, if these kids are living in this world and, and we're told that these these boys are what 16 17 18 19 years old right who are doing the walk and it seems as if the walk's been going on most of their lives yeah at least that long right right because they've they've been taken to previous walks when they were younger and so they've seen it so it's not like they would talk about 
hey, remember when the United States was like this? Or remember when we were broken up into different quadrants and we all had to fight for food? Like, it's not like a Hunger Games type of thing. Mm -hmm. I think, but to your point, we're conditioned as early 21st century readers to be like, okay, well, what's, what is the world that's going on here? Was there a nuclear war? Has there been a, a coup? Is, is this post-apocalyptic in some way? Is there a different type of government than we're used to? And we don't get all of that. And I think the other thing that's sort of odd for us is that King sets this up to be like a game show. Yeah, We're only eight chapters in, but almost every epigraph at the beginning of each chapter is a quote from a game show, Jeopardy, Price is Right, Let's make a deal, those types of things. And so like, oh, this is a game show. This is a game show. This is a game show. And as we know now how game shows are done, whether it be Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune or whether it be reality type game shows like The Great Race and Survivor and those types of shows, Mm -hmm. these people train and plan for it. Yeah. And we don't seem to get that with these boys at all. Like there seems to be a lot of confusion about what the long walk is and rumors And it's like, oh, if this is such a big deal and your life is literally on the line, wouldn't you do some research and like know like what the route is? What should I wear? What should be the proper clothes? How what's the most efficient type of walking and shoes and socks and backpacks and food to bring along with me? And none of that. It seems very haphazard and random. Like, hey, Ma, drop me drop me off here at 830 in the morning and I'll see you on the other side, maybe. And yeah, I find that both puzzling and infuriating. Because yeah. it's it's the same soapbox that I kept climbing on in this, our coverage of The Stand, where every time somebody's going to hike across the United States, they're walking in the wrong type of shoes. They're not preparing themselves with the right camping gear. Right. And at least they can stop at a camp more or a whatever, <laughs> or an L.L. Bean and get everything that they need to survive right. much more comfortably, much more easily within, without it. I agree. Anything that is this popular, that is this nationally televised and part of people's lives and to the degree that it is, I would think everybody would know the route like their whole lives. It would just be something that people talk about, you know, like hill number three and bridge number two and stuff. It would just be part of the vernacular and nobody would show up with or without the wrong equipment or the wrong shoes. A lot of the people on this walk, they simultaneously know tons about it and it's like they didn't know what it was yeah at the same time and so i guess maybe none of this really matters jay yeah because i think king is not really telling a story about a competition called the long walk he's more interested in some sort of allegory here mm-hmm. it really made me wonder if this book should have been called the long talk because what we have here is a small group of the hundred that we're following closely and it's really just them talking Mm-hmm. having these long conversations because what else is there to do it's like the perfect vehicle for an aaron sorkin production it's the law lo- it's the walk and talk the walk and talk and walk and walk and walk and walk and walk yeah and you know we don't get the edited reality show v- version of just like let's focus on this in the in the conflict what we get is the actual let's just follow this character and hear their conversations if this was going to be edited into a one-hour tv show Mm-hmm. over five weeks or whatever we would get drama and, and character build up and not like as the reality show structure is done but here we get just kings showing us the characters through the drudgery of walking whether it be hot whether it be cold whether it be rainy whether it be dark all they can do is walk and talk and of course what are they going to talk about they're going to talk about the actual walk that they're on yeah and they're 
mortality. Like that's all there is to talk about, right? Like this is all about death. Yeah. It's it's you walk until you die yep. or until everybody else has. The only next thing for every single person in this walk is death. Yep. Just like for everybody, the the end of your the journey of your life is your death. The end of their journey is death, but it's just much more immediate. Right. It's concentrated that entire lifespan and all of the considerations and the regrets and the hopes and all that into this one couple hundred miles of of road. Yes. It gives King an a, an opportunity to really explore that and give these young men who have very little life experience so far a chance to really come to grips with the end of their lives and the short span of their lives and how little they've done, how little they've experienced. It's pretty pessimistic, but it's also an exercise in futility, which I think that leads to the allegory that you hinted at a moment ago. It could be a lot of things, but the most obvious one to me is that this is an allegory for the Vietnam War. Yeah, that was my thought as well. I mean, these are young kids around 18. So in our world, in the late 60s, they had their concerns about being drafted and being sent to Vietnam and the expectation that there's a good chance that they would be killed and they would have not much say in it and not much reward to come out of it. It was doing something as part of their service to America that really didn't care about them. And so that seems to be what the long walk is here as well. Yeah. And just like with the draft, only young men are in this yep. this walk. There are no women. Their futile walk down a road until they just can't walk anymore. That is just in a nutshell what going to a futile war is, right? right? Like you're just going to march in place until somebody else shoots you anyway. Is the war going to mean something? Is the war going to change the world? As we know from the outcome of the Vietnam War, not so much. And even the soldiers themselves who came, when they returned to the United States, the ones who lived, lived the rest of their lives with. PTSD and injuries and sort of an abandonment by the society that they were supposed to be protecting and defending in in their service. So all in all, kind of a, a shitty outcome yeah. for for a futile effort and that is life and death. Why not make it even more silly? Why not make it even more futile by just make it a walk? Yep. They all have been assigned numbers, just like the men would have been assigned a draft number in the lottery. I found it interesting that Garrity becomes fascinated with Scram because Scram is married. Oh, uh, yeah. And he's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, why are you here? You're married. Like, you shouldn't be doing this. He's just like, it just sort of blows his mind that he's doing that. And it made me think of Platoon, where they're really freaked out because Charlie Sheen gave up his college deferment to go to, to Vietnam. And they're like, you don't have to be here. Why are you here? It gave me a little bit of a similar aspect to that. So. Knowing that King was as anti-war as he was, I think he was one of the leaders of the anti-war group on the University of Maine campus where he went to college. The fact that this was the late 60s. I haven't read anything saying that this is an allegory for Vietnam, and King doesn't say it in either one of the essays, but it seems pretty spot on to me. Yeah. Because I think one of the things that we're asking about is this is still voluntary. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they're drafted or forced to do it, or they're doing it for the good of their town or society. Like Garrity feels uncomfortable being called main zone. Yeah. Like he keeps seeing these signs. Like at first he's like, oh, wow, like that's sort of cool. But then after a while, he's like, none of that matters. It's still just me. Like I'm not, I'm not doing this for Maine. I'm doing it for myself. 
but they're all trying to figure out why they're doing this. Mm-hmm. Like the one guy's trying to write a book and they're like, well, why are you writing a book? Because you, you could sell a lot, but you're going to get money anyways, if that's what you want for the prize. Yeah. The other guy's sort of doing it because he just wants to dance on the graves of everybody else, which isn't really a good reason. But like they all sort of have reasons, but not really. Garrity and McVries, who seem to have this relationship. They're they're like sim- simpatico the, yes. more than anybody, right? Ultimately, he, he, he says to Garrity, we want to die. That's why we're doing it. Why else, Garrity? Why else? Somebody says this is the next thing to suicide, except that a regular suicide is quicker. And yeah. true, you're going to punish yourself by walking until you physically cannot walk anymore. That means an intense amount of pain and suffering, and then somebody shoots you. Yep. Or you could just kill yourself. And I don't want to make light of suicide. That is not my point here. But if you're going to choose a way to end your own life, this sounds like a terrible choice. Yeah. But more than 100 people volunteer for this every year in in the world of this story. Near the end of this section that we read, where McVrive says to Garrity, you've been had. Yeah. Like, you don't know why you're doing this. You don't know what's going to come of it but you've been had like, this is all a giant scam, mm-hmm. which obviously McVries has fallen for as well, but like, yeah, they, they've all been had in some way, which again, was a little bit of a, not a rallying cry, but like a common thought in the sixties and seventies that people have been taken by their government in some way. We're a little more than halfway through the novel, right around halfway through this and 30 kids have died already. Something like that. Yeah. They, they got their tickets. So we're about 30. Sometimes we know their names, sometimes we know their numbers, and other times it's just like people are having a conversation and then you hear shots in the background and you know another kid's fallen. And I'm I'm a little bit obsessed with this idea that there's these rumors going through hmm. the group and, and what that means is like, who was that? Was it so-and-so? And and they don't know. You mentioned the mystery-ness of it earlier, and there's one character named Stebbins who's always near the back of the pack, uh-huh. who Garrity's obsessed with in some way. And who knows a little bit more about the walk than other people. And he and Garrity have discussions about that. We've got the sort of core group of eight kids that we're following right now and, and see how they're doing. But it, it is a gloom novel, but it has kept me interested. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm really digging it. Sean, this book is not only not even written by Stephen King, it's pretty far off from the Dark Tower. Yes. But have you found any Dark Tower thinnies this one? Oh, well, I have, as a matter of fact. Awesome. The fact that Richard Bachman started off this book with the major drove across Maine and the long walkers followed. I mean, that was just an obvious. <laughs> oh, wait. That wasn't the first sentence of this novel. It seems like it should have been. We can make up Dark Tower Thinnies now. I didn't know that was allowed. I know. I mean, would that have been cool if that was there, though? I like the line that you, you made up so much. I was like, oh, that is an awesome thinny. Great find, Sean. Wait a second. Never happened. One thingy that I found was King quotes Thomas Carlyle, O vast, gloomy, solitary Golgotha and mill of death. Mm-hmm. Of course, anytime I see the word Golgotha at this point, I'm always going to think of the gunslinger and the dark tower. So I'm calling that a thinny. Yeah, I'll allow it. In my tradition of anti thinnies, I will say that. The Walker numbered 19 is thus far unnamed. There's no reference to Walker 19. We get, I would say about 15 to 20 characters. We know their name and number, but 19 is not one of them. 
And the 19th boy who gets a ticket, that happens off screen. There's like a series of like, oh, and then six other kids died. And I'm tracking the numbers, Jay, so I know. Uh And so the 19th boy who gets a ticket, we don't get named. We don't get any details. Like, it's not like his foot's run over. It's not like he faints or has convulsions. He just, just unnamed death. He's not pushed into the half track by a priest. No, that would have been a good one. (laughs) Yeah. Why did you do this? There are other worlds than these, Walker 19. (laughs) At one point uh, when they are all just, they're really just getting started on the walk. Somebody notes that the next town is Caribou, Maine, and they are only 19 miles away. Ooh. I know. I mean, like a mile sooner, they were 20 miles away from Caribou, and a mile later, they're 18 miles away from Caribou. But the line in the book notes the distance as 19 miles to Caribou. And probably 1,900 from Hemingford home. There's a, a one of the walkers named Pearson calls another walker long, tall, and ugly. Mm. Uh, so th- it's pretty thin, but that was Eddie's favorite nickname for Roland. Yeah. So Is his name Roland? The kid, the walker that's long, tall, and ugly? That'd have been a good one. Nope. I don't think anybody has been named Roland yet. Well, Jay, it was a stretch for the Dark Tower Thinnies, but maybe the yucking it up will have more success with. I'm sure. Why don't you kick us off? All right. So despite the fact that 30 kids are dead, I'm going to pick the one kid who's killed in a flashback. So this is a memory that Garrity has about his youth. And he hears about a car that hit Freaky D'Alessio. He says, the car hit Freaky D'Alessio's bike and Freaky went up over the handlebars, knocked, spang out of his shit kicker boots by the impact both of his legs trailing out behind him in a crippled splendor as his body flew its short, wingless flight from the seat of his Schwinn to a stone wall where Freaky landed and spread his head like a dollop of wet glue on the rocks. Yikes. Yeah, that is uh, very detailed there. And it reminds me of the story that King says he doesn't remember, but claims that he saw a kid get hit by a train when he was like five years old, right? And I think that the kid was knocked out of his shoes and and squished as well. So, first of all, that is definitely some quality yucking it up. But (laughs) there's a lot in parallel with that description of when Stephen King himself was hit by the van. Yes, that's true. So when I read that line in the book, I was like, "Holy shit!" He's like 18, writing this story, and he's basically predicting his near death experience. 40 years in the future, yeah. <laughs> 40 years into the future. Like, that's scary and kind of crazy. Yeah. Freaky D'Alessio. Great name. Uh-huh. It, obviously not his given name. Yeah. He took on D'Alessio for some reason. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it used to be Friday. <laughs> that was a slow burn on that one. So I only had one yucking it up, and it was the first ticket Mm. that happens in the story it was a walker named curly and the line is curly's angular pimply head disappeared in a hammer smash of blood and brains and flying skull fragments hammer smash is just such a great noun Uh uh-huh yeah the reason why this is the first person to die in the walk so i think it's the that's the reason why king spends some time describing it yep every death that follows is just basically like the sound of the gun or the, the potato sack fall of a body. And it's pretty unremarkable. 
Yeah. Except for the the kid who does fall beneath the half track treads and, and his legs get smushed and yeah. he can't walk anymore. Yeah. But King was so matter of fact with that that it it didn't really read as as a yucking it up moment for me. No, I think the point of that was to try to like you got the sense that Garrity was going a little bit crazy there and he was like, "Oh my god, did you see his legs?" and he has McVrise there trying to tell him to keep his mind off of it. Tell me more about Jan. You're going to grow up and get married and have two kids. He's like, oh my God, but the guy's legs. He's like, yeah, but you're going to have a house, right? He's like, yeah, I love her. And like, it's mm-hmm. that trying to like keep his mind off of it. Um, uh, we had mentioned in another podcast about how King does not shy away from the damage that guns can do. Right. That it's a good here. Do you think it works like, I wonder how many people came to this not realizing what was going to happen. Like, King sorts, he just says, like, they get a ticket, but, like, it's not clear what's going to happen. Like, it sort of is, but sort of isn't. It's not much of a reveal, I guess. Like, it's pretty obvious, I think, what's going to happen. Do you think he's trying to keep away from it in those first couple chapters? I think he lets the reader ride that same wave that the walkers seem to have. There's just, like, just enough self-denial about what they're really into here that maybe it's not actually what everybody's just plainly stating. Yeah. Like, like you're going to get your ticket. You're going to get your ticket. And like, yeah, you've got that nice euphemistic name for it, but basically you're going to be shot to death. Right. And right there where you stand, like not like we're going to take you away and do it behind a tree or something like Mm -hmm. the minute you fall below that, thing done no matter who's around you you can't run you can't hide it's just gonna happen there's yeah. no pleading you know the one character says like oh i expected a like maybe like a little flag would come out that said bang like in the cartoons or i, I don't know how much the hiding of it works but I like your thought of it like that self-denial of, this can't really be what happens is it mm-hmm. something just popped into my head about how this seems like a pseudo futuristic thing like it's not so much it's post-apocalyptic but the technology that these soldiers have seems to be something that the rest of society doesn't have or something. Right. But why do they need to have actual soldiers who aim actual rifles? Why not have, you know, put some sort of collar on each of the walkers that doesn't interfere with their ability to walk or anything like that. It's not heavy, but it tracks their speed. It tracks their location. And if they drop before, but below four miles an hour, it just, it detonates. Right. And it doesn't even have to be something crazy like that splatters brains everywhere. It's just enough to like snap your spine or whatever. I don't know. But again, not not really the point. Yeah. And also, like, who is this for? Is it for the spectators or is it for the walkers? Like, there's a reason they're doing it this way. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we want to remind folks that we are continuing to run a Patreon on Patreon.com and you can help support our show. And at the same time, get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. Visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. Sean, is it time for some fun stuff? I think it is. So I'm going to skip over my first one, which was, you know, all the game show epigraphs. It's fun. I am a big game show fan. I love game shows. I had a giant encyclopedia of game shows that sat on my bookshelf for years and years where I would talk about it and when the game show network came on cable, I was excited. So I oh, did wow. all the game show epigraphs. I don't know how well it works for this story as well as it might work in the running man, but I don't remember the running man story as much as I remember the movie. So I'm going to have to wait until 
maybe we read that sometime. So let me not spend a lot of time on the epigraphs, even though I just spent two minutes talking about it, and talk about the fact that one of the characters says, he's talking about Hank Aaron's home runs, and he says, that's a record that would never be equaled. Well, it is now the year 2020, and that record has been equaled and surpassed by Barry Bonds. Maybe under juiced circumstances, but it has been beaten. So a record that did that was equaled and then surpassed. As a person who knows so little about sports that I'm only guessing that this is baseball. Yes, <laughs> that is correct. That you're talking about? Only one person has beaten that record since? For the amount of home runs, yes. Okay. Okay. So it still was a pretty remarkable record then, that in all of these intervening years, only one person has, it has only been beaten one time. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess so, except it was total home runs over a career. So it did seem like it would be a, a, a record that would never be matched. But One thing that I want to talk about in Fun Stuff was Pearson and his method of counting who, how many <laughs> people have died and how many people are still walking. Yep. And he's doing this by having by starting the, the walk with 100 pennies in one pocket. And every time somebody gets their ticket, he moves one of those pennies into the other pocket. Which means he is, first of all, always carrying a hundred pennies. <laughs> so he's that's extra weight that he just doesn't need to be carrying. Yep. And also, this is a really bad way of keeping track. It's not <laughs> like he could stick his hand in his pocket and like by feel know that 47 people have died, right? Right. Like, who can count pennies that way? Nobody can. So this is a really dumb way of, of doing this. I'm just so annoyed with Pearson for having this whole penny counting thing. <laughs> it's just silly. Yep. We've asked a couple questions like, what sort of society is this? And we know it's close enough to our society that L.L. Bean still exists and McDonald's still exists and Dairy Queen. And there's not a whole lot of pop culture references, but there is one that caught my eye, Jay. And that's uh, somebody says, if you're a 16-year-old boy, you can't discuss the pains of adolescent love with any decency anymore. You just come off sounding like fucking Ron Howard with a heart on. So it's nice to know that Opie still exists in this world. I mean, somebody's got to narrate Arrested Development. <laughs> That's true. I thought it was uh, quite interesting slash funny that at one point, Garrity feels like he's walked through a Shirley Jackson story. Like, yeah, that's a little nail on the head there, King. But OK, totally. Our characters are very well read for being what seems to be just working class 16 18 year old kids right mm -hmm. there's a lot of references to some deep poets and authors that you wouldn't necessarily think that these kids would be reading but yeah i mean that's one of my other fun stuff items is that mcvrise tells us about how he wooed his girlfriend in his the story explaining how he got his scar by quoting her the works of John Keats and, and others, right? Oh, yes. It does seem like, first of all, he's a teenager. Second of all, he's growing up in like a rural part of the country because he's talking about how everywhere smells like cow shit. Right. It's surprising to hear him talking about Keats in this very natural way as though this it's like something that all teenage boys talk about. Right. And what's even funnier for me is that he says the line he says that's really fun is that the smell of cow shit goes in a particular fashion with the works of john keats like somehow <laughs> is this king saying keats is bullshit 
like right <laughs> basically and i uh, i also thought this was a cool little like side reference for me because i'm a big fan of the hyperion cantos by dan simmons and he revolves the sec of uh, the sorry the third and fourth of those four book series around the works of john keats in fact john keats is a character in one of those books oh wow he names book three endymion which is one of keats's poems and then the fourth book is the rise of endymion so he's he's really working hard to fit keats into these books hmm. so it's cool to to have keats re- you know referenced in this book even if it is mcbride saying keats is bullshit and then the final thing I had in my fun stuff notes is that McVries is much like Eddie Dean and Larry Underwood to me. Like McVries is the most Stephen King stand-in of all the characters so far. And he's always making these funny jokes and jibes and keeping everybody on their toes with like, why did the, the comment doesn't even make sense kind of thing. <laughs> One of my favorites is that he's he's giving somebody crap about, oh, here comes so-and-so, you know, he's author of a peach is not a peach without a pit in other works and (laughs) so he's just making up book titles yeah that's why it's like the same character who can just rattle off these non sequitur jokes and make up book titles and quote keats to his girlfriend that sounds like king right that's king as a teenager that's these are the things that drove him these are the things that made king who he was and I mean, maybe that's how King got Tabitha to, to get to have interest in him was, you know, by quoting Keats. Right. <laughs> I don't know. It, it feels like that's the character rather than the main character, which would have been too easy, too big of a mistake for the author to make. I think he he made it the second character. Yeah. Other than Garrity being from Maine and having a girlfriend that he seems to really care about and love. Mm hmm. He's a fairly blank character. Yeah. He he very much seems to be like an observer of what other characters are doing. Um, and we see things from his perspective. And we do get his inner thoughts, but we don't get a huge amount of details to set him apart. The other characters seem to have more of a personality. Like Scram's married and is like very strong and tough. And he knows he's going to win. And the one guy's a real asshole and wants to dance on their graves. And the other guy's writing a book. And Stebbins is quiet. And McBride is sort of this odd flirty literature minded guy with a scar like garrity seems to almost be the everyman type of character mm-hmm. stebbins also likes jelly sandwiches good choice a lot of carbs for walking in yeah the other reason mcvrise is like king is that he seems to have worked in a laundry type of factory mm-hmm. which king also did yep and famously wrote the story the mangler as a result of it mm-hmm. yeah so maybe king's got a scar or two that he doesn't tell us about but uh or maybe they're just mental scars. They hurt on the inside, Jay. That's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we finish The Long Walk, covering chapters 9 through 18. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening.
Welcome to Future Sean. You'll be editing this in February of 2021. What must that world be like out then? Or will you just do it sooner? Perhaps, but I'll have like five episodes of The Stand to edit between now and then. That's true. We really won't have a lot of extra time. This is past Sean talking to future Sean.